0: Today, I had the distinct honor to connect with my friend and colleague, Dr. Joan Rosenberg. She's a highly regarded psychologist, master clinician, trainer, and consultant, and a cutting-edge psychologist. Today, we spoke at length about the childhood impact of our ability to express ourselves and understanding that if we have the capacity to think, we have the capacity to change. We spoke at great length about the role of uncomfortable feelings, triggers, awareness and reframing, experiences versus disconnection, the benefits of facing our pain as well as resilience, the goals of communication, incongruent thoughts and actions, growth, generosity, compliments, and humility. This is one of my favorite recent conversations. Joan is a dear friend and absolutely brilliant. I hope you will love her work and absolutely her book, 90 Seconds to a Life You'll Love. Enjoy. Enjoy. Well, good morning, Joan. It is so wonderful to have you on the podcast. I've been wanting to interview for the podcast and for listeners, they may not know that I'm also dear friends with Dr. Joan Rosenberg, and it's really an honor to have you on the podcast. So much wisdom. You have this ethereal presence about you. It's so calming. And I know that that will be conveyed in our conversation this morning.
1: Well, you're so sweet. I'm just It's a total treat for me to be here, Cynthia. So, You know how much I respect and honor your work. So it's like, I'm just pouring love on you to start.
0: (laughs) Likewise, for sure. So when we're talking about, you know, a lot of what you are known for as a clinical psychologist is the concept of doing the work and working through these uncomfortable feelings. And in your experience, you have this broad range, both as a clinician and also as a professor, Let's start the conversation talking about how our childhood actually impacts our ability to express ourselves, how it allows us or distracts us from being able to express ourselves. Because the one thing that I'm always humbled as I'm doing the work, I'm in my personal life, I'm always humbled how I reflect back on, we learn so much through our parents, good, bad, and indifferent, but in your clinical experience, How does that impact our ability to talk about our feelings, express ourselves, et cetera?
1: It actually impacts a lot. I want to start with a phrase I like to use and then work backwards from that. And that is that if you have the capacity to think, then you have the capacity to change. And so why I want to start with that is because in that sense, regardless of how we grew up, then if we have that capacity to think, we can think new thoughts as a result, we can learn how to do new things. And that is entirely tied to our ability to both regulate our emotions or regulate our feelings or modulate them, whatever words we want to use for that. And it has everything to do with our ability to also express what we're experiencing. So, what happens in childhood? Well, we grow up in probably, I can classify it as kind of three or four major environments. We grow up in a situation where there's chaos, there's abuse. There's hostility, there's you know, a disregard or neglect for the child in terms of what's going on, so that you have a, a situation where a child, if you will, and I think of a child as kind of growing to the emotional range of the parents. So if a parent is very explosive and reactive, then that child learns that as a style of both regulating themselves, handling their emotions, and also expressing. That's one environment. And again, if the child is abused or neglected, or we have any of those kinds of things going on, then a child can also go the opposite direction. So it's, I'm going to be reactive like my folks or my caregivers, or I'm going to shut it down because it was so hard to bear. Or we go to the other side where a child grows up in an environment where feelings don't get discussed at all. There's no response. It's all in the head and it's all you know, potentially achievement oriented or a whole host of things like that. And so there's no way to learn what my interior response is, my inside response is, because there's no reflection of it coming from the outside. So same thing. I'm going to grow to that emotional range. So I'll stay shut down or I might, because I need to get it out, I might start rebelling and go the other way and become reactive. And then we have a, the third major environment is an environment where it's much more even handed and feelings are messy, but it's not overreactive. And sometimes it's reactive, but, you know, it gets taken care of and the parent goes, oh, you know what? I was wrong when I did that. And I'm sorry for letting go like that or becoming whatever it was so that there's the flow of emotion And a child then kind of grows to that emotional range. So again, the beauty of it is, regardless of those environments that we grow up in, if we realize it's not working for us, then we can learn a new set of skills. And the thing I also want to really emphasize here, Cynthia, is that in my mind, learning how to be with our feelings, to handle them, to deal with them, to modulate them, to regulate them, whatever words we want to use for that, and to express ourselves. So communication, both to me are skills. And so it's not that we should just be able to do it because we're here living, but they're actually skills that we have to develop. So emotional regulation is a skill we need to develop. And as well, communication is a skill that we need to develop.
0: And I love that you started the conversation saying that we all have the capacity. If we have the capacity to think, we have the capacity to change. So irrespective of what environment or environments we grew up in, we have the ability to shift direction and change course. And so for me, it's only fairly recently that I've started talking to listeners about the environment I grew up in. And the first two environments you talked about are the environments I grew up in. And I shut down. I got. I was the quiet kid. I was very achievement oriented. I knew if I was quiet and achievement oriented, no one bothered me at home. I could fly under the radar, but I never learned to really properly express myself. Like if you, if someone were to ask you about me in college, they would say she was very studious. She was very social, but she was, you know, kind of aloof, kind of distracted. And it was because it was very hard to modulate emotions in college, because I was realizing there's, you know, you go to college and you're exposed to so many different types of people, so many different people from different cultures and ethnicities, and it's all wonderful and exciting. But all of a sudden you realize what you grew up in is not everyone else's reality. And so that process of figuring out for yourself, like, is my behavior helping me or is it making it harder for me to grow and evolve? And I started therapy in my twenties, it was one of the very best gifts I gave myself. And I think on a lot of different levels, I have had to learn to find my voice, to speak up. And I know that we'll touch on these things as, as we evolve this conversation, but if there's anyone that's listening that didn't grow up in that super nurturing, loving, communicative environment, it's the recognition that you can change and you can learn new patterns And these are all skills, like much like cooking as a skill or learning how to ride a bike. These emotional communication pieces are things that we have to actively work on. Like I'm married to a wonderful man. We've been married for almost 19 years. He grew up in a very different home environment than I did. And so sometimes he's kind of bewildered by conversations that we have, but very lovingly supportive and has been very supportive of the process. So I wanted to make sure I just kind of got that out there. So when we're learning how to express ourselves or repress ourselves and the influences of how we grew up and the environments that we, you know, we find ourselves in in young adulthood, you know, what are some of the coping mechanisms? that you will see people embracing that can make it harder for them to work through their emotions?
1: Oh boy, (laughs) that's (laughs) that's wide open. I would say the most common we can think of super quickly. I like to put these under the category of distractions, disconnections, or to the word that you also used was uh, suppression. So it would be all those things that actually move us away from our experience. And so we can ignore We can deny. We can engage in chaos and disorganization. We can use alcohol or other substances. Weed's a real big one. Let's see. We can go shopping. We can use food. We can use any kind of screen or social media. We can have anxiety, which to me is actually a distraction, which might be a little controversial, but that I see anxiety more broadly is a distraction from unpleasant feelings. Let's see, harsh self-criticism is a way to stay away from unpleasant feelings. And we can have feelings about our feelings. Like I can be angry that I'm sad or disappointed that I'm angry. And that's also a way to move away. In uh, the 90 seconds book that I wrote, I think I talk about 35 different ways to do it. So I don't know, maybe that's a dozen right there. So the, the reality is, is that Many people do what I call trying not to know what they know. And as soon as someone tries not to know what they know, they take themselves out of the experience that they're having. And it just, move, in my mind, it moves people along what potentially is a very cut off and kind of ultimately, if they stay in it super long time, a dangerous pathway.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, everyone that's listening has experienced one or more of those ways of distracting ourselves or disconnecting ourselves. And is it because we are so uncomfortable dealing with the bodily or visceral response? Is that what drives these mechanisms? I know that obviously as a clinician, I saw everything you could imagine. And, you know, at the time I didn't fully understand and appreciate how our childhood and things we've experienced, whether it's trauma or chaos, et cetera, how that can influence our actions in response to these uncomfortable feelings. And for many people, it's not just, I'm going to go take a run. And that becomes their way of, you know, reflexively dealing with like, I'm just frustrated. I need to move, but there, it runs the continuum of things that are, you know, fairly benign all the way up to, you know, truly maladaptive ways of numbing those right. feelings that you're not wanting to embrace or to feel.
1: Right. So there are adaptive ways. The cleaning house might be an adaptive way to do that, right? Achievement on something might be an adaptive way. Exercise is an adaptive way. But I missed the front end of your question, though. There's many people that overdo and then move themselves away. I had two big questions when I started in life. Well, not immediately in my infancy, of course. (laughs) But I started out as a pretty shy child. I'm very introverted, very sensitive, not feeling like I belonged and felt like I didn't fit in. So everything was about difference and how do I make sense of what's going on? And so as I grew up, I would look over at my peers and I wanted what what I thought they had. And that was confidence. And the Second thing that happened for me, and this will get to your question, I realize wandering a little bit here. The second thing that happened was that as I got into my professional life as a psychologist, I would listen to people. And what I noticed is that as much as our thinking got in the way of what we were doing or how we functioned or how we felt like we were succeeding or getting to our goals, I found that someone's difficulty with unpleasant feelings was getting in the way even more. And so the second question I wrestled with is, what made it so difficult for people to deal with unpleasant feelings? And that really, both of those were, I would say, a 20, 25-year journey, at least. And what I realized about that second question, so it's to your point about the kind of visceral stuff, the visceral reaction, that what I came to believe is that people wanted to experience the full range of what we experience as humans. So that's the pleasant and the unpleasant. Because if we cut off from one side of it, we cut off our aliveness, our sense of aliveness. And feelings have everything to do with our experience of aliveness. And I feel more fully alive because I feel. So if we cut off half of that and we try to just do the pleasant stuff, it doesn't work. And then we're not authentic and genuine because we're not telling the truth about the other half of what we're experiencing. And so what finally came to me after all the neuroscience research started to come out much more fully in the, starting in the late nineties and then into the early two thousands and beyond was that it was an understanding that it's like, there's three or four points here for me. And one is that we're one interconnected whole. Our brain is always feeding information to the body and our body is always feeding information to the brain. So we can't like just be a talking head and that's it. We're connected, but a lot of us don't like to experience what we experience in the body. And so the second part then is understanding that most of us come to know what we feel emotionally through bodily sensations. So if I'm embarrassed, you might see the redness in my face. I'm going to feel the heat of the bodily sensation. When I get sad, I can feel actually sensations into my cheeks that lead to tearfulness so uh, that's a marker for me that I'm sad or a heaviness kind of into my chest that might be sadness and then a heaviness plus a drop down might be disappointment and when i was in high school <laughs> so again i'm circle around here when i was in high school i was a mascot and i didn't want to get invested in whether my high school team won or lost but it took me years to realize i didn't want to do that because i didn't like the disappointed Sensation associated with my body. So, what that was the thing that really dawned on me is that what most of us try to get away from when we are experiencing feelings that feel unpleasant or uncomfortable to us is we're trying to get away from the bodily sensation that helps us know what we're feeling emotionally. And so then we go off to distract. That's when we eat. That's when we social media screens. That's when we use food or shopping or you know whatever it might be, or sex or porn. So that's when we distract. It's when we don't want to experience what it is that we are experiencing because the bodily sensations are so uncomfortable.
0: Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, Quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification. DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per, that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link drAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. That makes a lot of sense. And how does that, is there a differentiator? You know, the concept of being triggered is like, that's a word right now when people say, oh, I'm so triggered. Is that the actual visceral bodily response in response to something like, as an example, I don't mean to throw my dad under the bus, but I I do talk about my dad's on the podcast. So I'm going to just say, you know, my dad and I, you know, we have a kind of a disconnected relationship. I'll just put it that way. There are things my dad will occasionally do that will bring me back to that six-year-old, seven-year-old child. And I'll look at my husband and I'll say, gosh, I'm so triggered but it's that visceral, it's amazing how it'll bring me back to exactly the uncomfortable feelings I experienced at that stage. And so is triggering any different than not wanting to, not per se, wanting to not expose yourself to the uncomfortable feelings, or is that just more of a like nouveau word of saying the same thing?
1: I would say that let's call it the awareness. So we don't have to do more past that. It's like, if you can be in the presence of your father, go and have the level of awareness, Cynthia, that you're being stirred up back to something that is so familiar that it resembles seven years old, but you have that awareness and you can go, I'm feeling triggered. Let's just, triggered is, let's think of triggered as I've got the awareness that something is, there's I've got the awareness that I'm about to be reactive. I like that. But it's a choice point mm-hmm. so that I can either be triggered and behave the way that I was when I was seven, or I can have the awareness that I'm being triggered. I want to be reactive in that similar way, but there's where our capacity to think comes in because then we can make a different choice and go, that was seven. I have a different set of resources available to me now as an adult that I didn't have at seven. So, I can make different choices. And to me, that's actually a super important point. That lots of times when we get triggered as adults, you know, something's being evoked that is familiar to us that was probably uncomfortable or potentially even damaging or destructive. What so many people get caught in, and I think part of the reason people get caught in staying in the stories of that seven year old and still behaving in similar ways. Is because they don't think of themselves as having a different set of resources as an adult that they did not have as a child. So, as an adult man or an adult woman, then you can step in and you can go, it's like, wait a minute, I have the capacity to think and reason in a way that I didn't at seven. I mean, even at 12, our our ability to reason changes from seven. We see the world differently. So, my thinking resources are different, my ability to handle my emotions. Are different. My ability to be social and to connect with other people is different. You might not have had a phone at seven, right? It might not have had whatever in terms of or the transportation to get there. So you have the resources of mobility, social resources, financial resources, on and on and on and on. But most people don't think about that, and they see themselves as an, in, in adulthood. They still see themselves as the having the resources that that seven-year-old had or the 11-year-old had or that 14-year-old had, and they don't see themselves as having the resources that all of adulthood brings.
0: It's such an important reframe, irrespective of where you are in life stage, that you know, if you have the ability and the capacity to think, you can change. I'm gonna keep just saying this because I think that's such a beautiful and simplistic way of addressing the fact that we are designed to evolve, shift, and change throughout our lifetime. We have the capacity to do so. Now you talk quite a bit in your work about unpleasant feelings and, you know, your book does such a beautiful job. And obviously this is a, a unique opportunity for me to share this with you that I, in 2019 was introduced to your work. A dear friend of ours, Tom Warcroft, had said, you have to get Dr. Jones book. And so I did, and I have it on audible so I can take it wherever I go. I don't have to physically have the book. And I listened to your book every single month. Like there's something, you know, there's some new insight. I take it with me. And I say this with great love, because your book is so powerful because it encourages people to understand that they have control. They're not out of control. And I think that's really very helpful. But in the book, you talk about these unpleasant, there's eight unpleasant feelings. And these are things people can recognize. They're tangible, but let's start talking about some of the ones that I think are more common. Obviously, the last three years, people probably have experienced every single one. We've had a lot of constraints on things that we can do and people we can see and the way we want to live our lives. But I, I think that the eight unpleasant feelings are things that most people can relate to.
1: Right. So the list of a And again, there's far more than eight. And some of these I would describe probably more as feeling states as opposed to the pure feeling itself. But the eight I talk about all the time are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. The first question I get, Cynthia, is why these eight? So for me, it's because they're the most common every day spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way that we want or the way we believe they need to be turning out. It's really the everydayness of them, right? And more nuanced feelings like resentment or jealousy or those kinds of things, I actually see in a wholly different way. And I left out anxiety for a certain reason. I left out fear for a certain reason. So for me, it's the everydayness of the eight, which is why I chose those.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, me personally, and just in talking to a lot of women on a day-to-day basis, shame is one that stands out for a lot of middle-aged women. And I would say vulnerability, because for many women, they're really at the state of vulnerability at the life stage they're at. They're trusting in these healthcare practitioners. They feel shame about the aging process. They, maybe they've gone through divorce or they've had some major life change. They feel shameful about the way their bodies are changing, And I'm paraphrasing, you know, for many, many women, thousands of women that I've worked with. And I'm curious, you know, when in particular about vulnerability, because vulnerable can mean a a myriad of different things. I would imagine that most women I know in particular deal with vulnerability pieces, either life stage, economically, emotionally, personally, professionally, feeling vulnerable for a variety of different reasons. When you're working one-on-one with your your patients, how do you help people reframe vulnerability instead of seeing it as a negative, kind of reframing those feelings? Well,
1: that's. can I break it down a little bit more? Mm -hmm. Because I talk in the book about what I call conscious vulnerability and non-conscious vulnerability. And I think it's important to understand that. And I also think it's important to understand kind of how we all experience vulnerability. Let me start with non-conscious vulnerability. I think of each one of us as being vulnerable 24-7. Like you and I are both vulnerable right now, you know, and how is that? Well, let's see. I mean, we can just even look the past few days and people experienced uh, horrible snowstorms or horrible cold or earthquakes or tornadoes or floods or fires or anything, a phone call that says so-and-so passed, Right. So in any moment at any time any one of us can experience this if you will this um, exposure to being hurt. So think of vulner- the first place to start is to think of a vulnerability as this sense that you could be hurt. Okay, 24/7 it all happens to us. Most of us don't keep an awareness of that level of vulnerability. If we have major awareness of that, then we don't want to do anything because we don't want to, you know, their their potential for being hurt is too great. So I don't want somebody to have a big awareness of it. I want somebody to keep a low level of awareness because when we have a low level awareness that we could be hurt, something could happen in our lives, we have actually the ability to make better choices about how we want to lead our lives. So my mom passed recently. She was also an older, older adult. And so I maintained a level of awareness about what was or wasn't going to happen so that I could stay more present and more in touch and more whatever. It helped me stay centered. Like I don't have all the time in the world with her. And so maintaining a low level of awareness about our vulnerability can help us make better choices. So non-conscious vulnerability is one part of it. The second is what I call conscious vulnerability. And that's the vulnerability we choose into. So you doing the podcast is conscious vulnerability. Me being on the podcast is conscious vulnerability because somebody could come along and go, well, that was really stupid or be critical in some way or whatever. And by virtue of us choosing to put ourselves out there in any way, could be learning a skill, could be making a statement, could be doing a speech, could be asking for a raise, could be, doesn't matter what it is, that Again, we're vulnerable 24-7, plus now we're choosing into this vulnerability. But for me, the moment we are choosing into our vulnerability, we're actually at our greatest strength. And I will tell you that there's a secret here. And the reality is, is that if one goes back over those eight feelings, vulnerability being one of them, the key to the whole process really and to handling vulnerability is having the awareness that if you were to get hurt, so vulnerability is a sense I could be hurt and what's hurt going to look like the other seven feelings. So if you go into life going, all right, I want to be vulnerable because that's going to allow me to pursue my goals or to be well-connected to people or be authentic or you name it. Then the most important thing for me to do is keep the, also the awareness that I can handle the other seven feelings if I get hurt. And if I go into anything going, I got this because I know I can handle the other seven feelings, then you can choose to be vulnerable as much as you want.
0: And is that where confidence comes in, in terms of like the recognition, like as I'm listening to you and and you and I obviously are in a space where we put ourselves out there and you know exist in the space. And I always lean back on what allows us to do the work is in my estimation, confidence, like confidence in our abilities, our ability to serve others, the message, etc.
1: Right, yes, I would say, yes, it's the basis of confidence. And if you look at my definition of confidence, it's the deep sense. So this embodied sense, I got it in my body, the deep sense that I can handle the emotional outcome, think the eight unpleasant feelings of whatever I face or whatever I pursue. So for me, the foundation, it's not the only thing for confidence, but the foundational piece for confidence is one's ability to experience and move through those eight feelings.
0: I think it's really important because when I reflect back on the way that I was raised, I was encouraged to stifle emotions. I'm a lady, you know, I'm a lady first. That was what I heard growing up in it to find my voice throughout my lifetime. I had no problems, you know, in an emergency, whether it was in the ER or critical care areas in a hospital. And I needed to like, you know, have my big girl voice, but advocating for myself is something that has taken a long time. And the understanding that sometimes advocating for yourself may actually create an awareness of some of these other feelings. And that's okay. Like it's with that understanding that it is okay, especially considering how I was kind of socialized as a kid And then the recognition that, you know, being a reformed people pleaser, I always like to throw that in there as well, like with that understanding, because I think it's important for people to know that it's not your life sentence. If you're a people pleaser, it doesn't have to be that way until the end of your days, that you can actually turn that ship around per se.
1: absolutely. Yeah
0: and when we're talking about confidence and resiliency and strength and all of these attributes are those born out of our life experiences are they a choice how does that happen
1: i would say both they can come out of our life experiences we can be taught them again that's the beauty of it it's not that i have this trait of resilience and you don't you can learn resilience you know and for me i break resilience down into there's a i think of it as kind of as layers because for me, the starting point of resilience is being able to handle the unpleasant feelings. The next most important thing that I think people can do when they're trying to be resilient is to be able to ask for help. Then we can look at basics like nutrition, sleep, supplements, sunlight, exercise, right? Total basics. That would be Why? Because that's going to help our body be well nurtured and well taken care of and will be more resilient because our body has the resources it needs or and then we I, for me we go on to things like any kind of contemplative practice so martial arts meditation prayer faith all those kinds of things i think of as again think of it as layers of resourcefulness that we're building up and then we for me we get to what i call resourceful resourceful thinking it is a combination of attitudes and beliefs plus questions. So for instance, I can hold the attitude or belief that every life experience is a learning experience. Doesn't matter what I go through, I'm going to turn in, it, it's, it's, uh, this will be a good story. And in fact, there are times that I've been through really hard stuff. And in my head, I'm going, this is going to be a good story at some, some point. And so it allows me just a little bit of distance, and, but that's a resilience attitude. Or I'm going to persevere no matter what. Resilience attitude. And so and we can come up a whole, with a whole host of those that I've been through something difficult before, and I know I can handle this too. So attitudes and beliefs are going to make a big difference in somebody being resilient. And then the other one that I've not heard people really talk about before is what I call resilient questions. So you were referencing the kind of the period of COVID and kind of this three-year Experience so far. And one of the things that I started to say very early on is that one of the questions in terms of resilience was how can I turn the same thing? How can I turn this into a learning experience? Or another one that I actually liked even better was how can I use what I'm going through to bring out the best in me? So we can adopt or make up any of those attitudes and beliefs. And we can generate questions for ourselves or ourselves that actually then invite us into being more resilient. So, yeah. resilience, resilient, again, same thing. Resilience to me is something that you can learn.
0: I could not agree more. It's interesting. I always talk about 2019 as through adversity comes opportunity. And that's how I choose to live my life. And That's how I view everything in my life that, you know, when I've had tough times and the toughest time I've ever had was in 2019 into 2020 and look at what changed on so many levels. And so I think that sometimes going through tough times can give us opportunities to show up differently.
1: Absolutely. One of the ways I describe it is that becomes our portal for growth. Actually, the wound becomes our portal for growth.
0: Yeah. And it can be very powerful. You know, it's interesting. I met a woman recently who unfortunately went through a divorce during the pandemic. And unlike many other women that I've kind of see go through that, she really had this incredible inner resiliency and has really used it as a very powerful catalyst to, you know, having, creating the life that I think she had always wanted to have. And I kept, you know, applauding her and saying, that's really incredible because many people would have taken something that is not designed to be particularly pleasant and taken in an entirely different direction. And so I think each one of us, we are given opportunities. I always say the universe, God, whatever that is that you believe in, gives us these opportunities, these portals that allow us to level up or to, you know, take our lives and make them significantly better. And I'm talking about deep emotional growth, deep intellectual growth. I'm not per se, just talking about materialistic stuff. That's not what I'm referring to. So when we're talking about resiliency and speaking our truth and facing our pain Do you find that sometimes people will get stuck on the journey, meaning they're endeavoring to kind of lean in, do the work, go to the therapist, go to the psychologist, the psychiatrist, but are there people who are incapable of facing their pain? Are they struggling in their personal professional lives and are incapable of facing these things? I know a lot of our conversation is very positive, but a few of the questions that I got from listeners and from uh, women in my monthly group was how do you help people who are making an effort but are are struggling to take that first step, if they're struggling to really lean into improving their circumstances? I'm trying to think of the least pejorative thing to say in conjunction with that thought.
1: Well, again, I'm, if I circle back to how I started, if we have the capacity, to think we've got the capacity to change. So if somebody's in the midst of the journey, My thing is I want to ask questions going two different directions. I want to ask a question about what's the barrier or barriers or obstacles? What's holding you back? In your mind, what is holding you back from taking that first step, whatever it looks like? And then the other one I want to ask is what is it that we can do that will help you Lean into or facilitate you taking that first step. So, I want to ask the question that goes both directions to get the barriers out of the way and then to find if there's anything that will help facilitate the movement. But again, more often than not, I think it's someone's reluctance to deal with unpleasant feelings. I mean, I hate, you know, metaphorically beating that horse or whatever, but or beating that drum, but that's it is such a core element of people's avoidance. Uh, People will say, I'm afraid of what I'm going to find out, or I'm afraid that if I start feeling something, it's never going to stop, or I'll be overwhelmed by it. And the reality is that that's while they may think that, none of that's true. So for me, it's I can only be encouraging and then to try to remove those obstacles, help remove those obstacles.
0: And that makes so much sense because I, I think a lot of our difficulty in in moving through these unpleasant feelings is our own the own barriers that we put in place for ourselves, whether it's emotional, physical, et cetera. Now, one thing that I love hearing your thoughts on, and and obviously in preparation for this podcast, how can we be better communicators? I know this is something for me that I'm constantly working on. I know when I worked clinically as an NP, I used to tell my physician colleagues that I worked with, they would say, how did you say that to the patient? I said you can say just about anything if you say it kindly. You know, you can literally right. say just right. about anything. But how can we improve our communication skills? Again, it's skill. It's something we can work on, it's something we can change. We're not stuck. It's not a fixed mindset. What are the things that we can do to improve this?
1: Can I dig deep on this one? Yeah. This is like my favorite topic.
0: Oh. I didn't know.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> as much as the unpleasant feelings are the foundation of my work, I will tell you that speaking, uh, the ability to speak and communicate is even more core and more important to me. So a couple of different, I'm going to, if you'll allow me to yeah, um, absolutely. expand here, many different things. The ability to be able to experience and move through those unpleasant feelings helps somebody feel emotionally liberated. The ability to communicate and to express yourself, meaning asking what you want to ask, saying what you want to say. Speaking with, I call it speaking with ease. In my mind, it leads to limitless opportunities. And that could be a job, a career approach. It could be, like I said, a raise earlier. It could be a better relationship, a deeper connection, a new friend. I mean, it just, the list goes on and on and on. So the most important thing for someone to understand with speaking with ease and being able to say what you want to say, to whom, whenever, wherever, right? Right with that one caveat of being kind and well-intentioned. So for me, that's a super important thread. So no matter what I'm going to say about speaking up, the thread that holds it all together is this being kind and well-intentioned. Is for people to understand that difficulty speaking up is not a speaking problem. And it's like, I got to let that one land a little bit. It's like difficulty speaking up is not a speaking problem. Difficulty speaking up is a difficulty with unpleasant feeling problem. So, and again, it took me 25 years or better to understand that. And that, but here's the thing. If I want to have a conversation with you and I want to say something that either is difficult, like, you know what, Cynthia, that was disappointing that such and such happened, or I want to say something else, like I said, beginning of of our conversation, which is I love you, or I really care about you. It's going to be, I mean, have to be equally vulnerable to do both of those, both sides of that. So I'm not just talking about unpleasant feelings in this case. I'm talking about our ability to express the whole range of what we feel, pleasant and unpleasant. And in order to do that, first of all, I have to be willing to be vulnerable, which means I have to be open to the other seven feelings. And so overall, then, in order for me to be in conversation, and say something, I have to be willing to handle the discomfort of my own emotional discomfort. Think the eight unpleasant feelings. And to be in conversation with you, it means also being able to handle the discomfort of your emotional discomfort simultaneously. Think the same eight unpleasant feelings. So the reason people don't get in conversation with anybody else is because they don't want to experience the discomfort of one or more of the anal pleasant feelings, whether they're their own or the ones that they anticipate they're going to experience with someone else.
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, Even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over a 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com Cynthia and get 10% off your first purchase. It's amazing that human beings can communicate with one another, given the fact that there's a degree of sophistication to this degree of communication. I know that for me, growing up in a, a situation where there was a lot of yelling and screaming and cursing, and you know, which is the antithesis of the way that my household is now, meant that I chose my words carefully. You don't want to inflame. And, you know, certainly as I've gotten older, having to get comfortable understanding that sometimes I may be sharing information to a loved one, a friend, a family member, uh, or a patient or a client that they may not want to hear Right. and then feeling comfortable and confident in who I am to say, okay, we're going to weather this together. But the acknowledgement of the fact that communication in many ways, especially over the last three years has been the opposite of that. It's not kind. It's not well-intentioned. It's very likely fueled by fear, which is overriding our prefrontal cortex and our, you know, executive functioning of our brains. And so we're not thinking as we're speaking and, you know, it's that thoughtfulness that differentiates us from our lizard brains. And so I think this is something that all of us, including myself, I actively have to work on this. Sometimes my teenagers will say something just to be inflammatory and I have to catch myself. (laughs) I really have to catch myself and think before I speak. And I'll just say, hey, time out. Uh You know, Sometimes I have to just take five minutes to just think, take the lizard brain out of it and just think, (laughs) okay, let's get back to my thinking brain. This is important. And I would imagine these are skills that people probably, if they didn't learn them as a younger person, that they have to actively work on if they choose to. I think there are a lot of people who perhaps assume that the opposite of being kind and being well intentioned and being uh positive, you know, that that's their norm. And they just don't know any differently. They don't even recognize that there's an issue with that type of communication.
1: Right. Well, so I totally agree with you with everything you just said and and the importance of actually taking that pause to wait and before you respond so that you're de escalating yourself and quieting, to use your words, kind of the lizard brain. Yeah. So that but the it's very interesting. I think that one's choice to escalate, one's escalation is a choice. So it's interesting. It's we, when we're in those difficult environments, like you were referring to, you know, the cussing, the swearing, the whatever, and, or you didn't know the unpredictability of stuff, right? Which is what a lot of people grow up in. It's understanding that that unpredictability actually has nothing to do with you. And it doesn't matter what you say or what you don't say, you're not in charge of the unpredictability. But we learn to shut down thinking that we're the source of it and we're not. So that, yes, then we have to learn the skills of communicating. And your, one of your questions was, what kind of, what are good ways to do that? The or more effective ways. And there's a number of different things that I, I use actually. One is again, this threat of being kind and well intentioned. And that is, as long as your life is not in danger, then for me, it's like establishing that as a value to live by. And that's what I've done. It's a value to live by. And sometimes I can use my values to help me respond better in situations when I'm tempted to be less than that. That's one. The second is, so being kind and well intentioned is first, uh, promoting safety, that when I'm around others, that what I want them to experience is that they're in a safe environment. Well, the best way to help people feel safe is actually to be kind and well-intentioned. But safety is a second. The third thing that I do is I use what I call tentative language. So I use words like seems like, sounds like, have you considered, my impression is, my sense is. And anytime I use words like that, then it allows the listener to have a choice in what I'm gonna offer up. They can go, no, it's not that. But because I'm offering it in a way that gives that person a sense of choice, usually people will then lean into hearing the information. Or other times I'll be what I call preemptive bid. And the preemptive bid is basically, I mean, it can sound like a lot of different things, but in my relationship, I'll often, but when it comes up, it's like I know something difficult's gonna be coming up. It's like, okay, difficult question or difficult topic. Wanna well, give you the heads up, but it's a well-intentioned way to be safe, to create safety. It's like I want to know, I want you to know that we might get into a, you know, a, a more difficult conversation here. And are you open? Basically, it's kind of my bid and going, are you open to that? So there's a wide variety of things that we can do to actually be able to, as you were saying, be able to say the things that we want to say and have them, generally speaking, pretty well received.
0: I think that's really important, irrespective of who you are, where you live, what kind of job you do. These are skills that are so important. And I think language is important even more so now than ever before. And how we practice the delivery of a message I think is more important now than ever before. On the flip side, in terms of communication, how do we handle when we have incongruent thoughts and actions? So let's say someone says, I love you. But then their actions don't or are not aligned with that. How do we work through that? Because I I think that this is an area that I find behavior fascinating. And this is part of that nerdy side of my personality. But you know, when I people come to me and they'll say, you know, I'm in a new relationship or I've got, you know, I'm I've got a public persona or there's something that's going on. How do I rectify the differences in this behavior? how do you address it or what are your thoughts on incongruent behavior and like thoughts and actions
1: well the the hard part there is that to use the old phrase actions speak louder than words and what's generally speaking more telling is the action the behavior and you know people may be incongruent once again because they're not willing to deal with the unpleasant feeling states that being congruent that would actually lead to but the fascinating thing about that is that when somebody's congruent meaning at the minimum their thoughts feelings words and actions all match they're at their greatest strength that's where confidence kicks in that's if, when you're congruent that's the glue of confidence one of the glues if you will of confidence when the behavior and the words don't match or the behavior and the, the thoughts don't match then you've got the behavior is the one to listen to unfortunately mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It makes sense. And it, and it's interesting how you know those of us kind of navigate young adulthood, not realizing that per se. And then all of a sudden you become, you get to a state where you're like, Oh, now that makes sense. Now I understand there are a lot of people that are word oriented and not action oriented. And you want to make sure that there's a marrying between the two.
1: Now, let me add one piece before you mm-hmm. go on to the next thing. What's interesting is in couples, like I do a lot of couples work and or I work with a lot of couples, (laughs) whichever that should, however that should be. But what's really interesting to me about that is that most times people will get caught on arguing about the topic and they leave out. So think of the arguing about the topic as what is being expressed, but they leave out the reactions that they're having to how something was expressed. Tone of voice, rolling of eyes, turning away, escalating, whatever it is, And from my perspective, it's actually a big miss between couples if the second part doesn't get addressed. And I actually think that if it did get addressed, we'd see less divorces. Mm -hmm. That it's because that second part, and which I think is actually more damaging, when that does not get addressed, it leads to a divisiveness in the couple. So you're calling attention to this idea of incongruence between words and behavior Super important and especially important with couples.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, having had parents that have been married and divorced multiple times, for me, I didn't have a, like a role model per se for what a healthy marriage looks like. And I'm grateful I married someone whose parents were married till his dad passed away many years ago. But it's one of those things where, you know, I think my grandmother said to me, never go to bed angry. I mean, like things that seemed at the time I was like, well, of course you wouldn't go to bed angry, but things that seem so simple but are so important, you know, that communication breakdown can happen so easily. And, you know, during the pandemic, one of the things we started doing was taking our dogs for really long walks because we couldn't do a whole lot else. And so we would just have these conversations, you know, it was, we were away from the kids. We could just talk outside with the dogs. We got exercise dogs, probably got walked more than they wanted to be. But understanding that that communication piece is so critically important that you're connecting with your partner, significant other. Right spouse, because it's very hard if you're connecting, like really having real discussions on a regular basis, it's hard to avoid those topics. Whereas if you're, as you mentioned, and people can, you know, we have video that comes along with the audio, but you were kind of differentiating that, you know, when people are arguing about one thing, but they're ignoring this other piece, you know, they're avoiding having the the harder conversation. Maybe they're making about you left dishes in the sink or you snored or whatever it is, but it's really a deeper issue that they're too uncomfortable. Those uncomfortable feelings are welling up and they just don't want to have that. They're avoiding per se. They don't want to have the conversation. They're avoiding that conversation because they don't want to deal with their potential feelings or potentially their partners.
1: Right. Yeah, no, it's just that, so that congruence or the incongruence between the behavior and the thoughts and words is just, I just wanted to highlight that because it's so important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And along the same kind of lines, when we're talking about communication, how do we accept and receive compliments? I think this is something that I sometimes struggle with, but I'm working through, but what's an effective way to receive the compliment, accept it and not feel like, I think a lot of women reflexively want to say, oh, you too, or, you know, instead of just receiving, processing, saying, thank you. And I saw in one of your interviews, you actually said compliments, receiving compliments is a reflection of you back to you.
1: Yes, yes. So that that's how I look at it. And it actually comes from a life experience that I had, that I think the awareness that I was able to develop about this. Because I, when I was in my early 30s, even as much as I was at the front end of my career and gone through grad school, I was starting to teach grad school, and the students kept on responding to me in a very, very favorable way. And what they were saying to me, it was like, I was like, what? What are you, me? And that was how I was responding to it. And, but it kept happening, like year after year after year after year. And it was like, okay, wait a minute. There's a consistency to this that I have to pay attention to. And it's like, when I did that, I realized that what it did is it had an effect. It's like the, whatever old story I had going on myself, there's still that shy part of me that goes, really? But there's another part of me that goes, okay, I got it. I understand it. And so what it did is it allowed me to experience myself differently. So the way, and so it came out of a personal experience, but the way that I look at compliments, I don't think people talk about compliments enough compliments are a reflection of you back to you. So it'd be like me holding up a mirror to Cynthia and saying, Cynthia, this is how I see you. This is how I experience you. And if you play it down, you know, you just know when you talking about, oh, it was luck. Oh, it's nothing, nothing like, I don't know, 30 years of experience. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Lots of lived experience, lots of professional. When you do that, not only are you dismissing my reality, you're dismissing my experience of your reality. In essence, dismissing your own reality because a genuine compliment comes from an experience of you and an experience with you. It's not just being pulled out of thin air someplace. So the, the first thing to remember when you get a compliment is that it's a reflection of you back to you. But it, for me, it doesn't stop there. You want to so how do you receive it? Well, thank you is one way. Uh, Lisa Nichols offered another one, which I really love, which is I receive that. Just simply, I receive even if I it's hard for me to believe in the moment, I receive that. Now a lot of people will toss them out because their self-described image of themselves is so discrepant, so distant from how they're being seen, that they'll dismiss it. Rather than, again, take it in, understanding that that's how they're being experienced because that's who they are. Now, they might not be that way 24-7, but that's how they are. So what compliments do, if you start to take them in and really absorb them and go, okay, I got it, you know, and look how consistently I get this feedback, is that I think that they up-level an update. They up-level someone's sense of self and self-image, and they update it. And without it, you don't get to up-level and update in the same way. And here's the other thing. Compliments are timeless. I love that. So play with this. I'm going to invite you and whoever else is listening to play with this. Think about how many compliments you've dismissed over the years. And think about what those compliments were. And the first thing I'm going to ask you to reflect on about that is, who would you have become... If you'd actually allowed yourself to take in those compliments at that time, that's kind of one exercise, if you will, to do. The second part is to go, All right, I'm going to generate a list of the compliments I've received past three months, past month, three months, six months, year, three years, 10 years, 30 years. I'm going to write all that stuff down. And now I'm going to look at it. And I'm going to let myself really take it in and see who you become and how you experience yourself because now you're allowing yourself to absorb what you were given in the first place.
0: That's really powerful. That's really, really powerful. And the, I receive that. How easy is that to say? You don't have to reflexively you know, downplay it. You don't have to mirror anything back. I receive that. Actually, someone did that with me recently. And so now I know where they probably had heard that, which I think is a wonderful thing.
1: So it's thank you. I receive that.
0: Yes, I like that. And last but not least... Out of curiosity, talk about briefly the role of humility because I know in the space that you and I exist in, most people are very heart-centered and humble and and I think that's a beautiful thing. What does humility tell us about ourselves?
1: Oh, well, I have a different view of humility. So, here's the thing. I think that if you dismiss the truth of who you are, so if you're a person, so this is kind of an offshoot of the compliment piece, if you're a person that dismisses compliments, if you're a person that plays down your accomplishments or diminishes the good things that you do, the good things that you say, the good things that all those kinds of things, then to me, that is arrogance.
0: And it's interesting because I think societally, when we think about arrogance, we think about it as being boastful and you know talking about yourself too much. And so you're inviting us to think differently.
1: Yes. So someone who does those things is boastful and, uh, well, that sounds conceited or, or what, what? big head, right? <laughs> right? Anybody who's behaving that way and has to tell me 17 times how great they are is not feeling so great about themselves. So if somebody has to be boastful or is boastful and has that sense that it has to keep happening, what you're getting is the picture of insecurity and a sense of inadequacy not what appears arrogant and conceited. Now, if I tell you that I do something well, and or I'm good at that, like let's say I was a good piano player and, I, and I'm not because I, I don't play piano, but I tell but somebody, you listen to me and go, yeah, I am, I am good. Or Venus or Serena Williams saying that they were good at tennis. Once, twice, three times, done. That to me is healthy confidence. That's also humility because you're telling the truth of who you are. So arrogance to me is downplaying or diminishing the truth of who you are. Humility is actually telling the truth of who you are. It's owning it. It's living into it. And what's interesting to me around this compliment thing or the boastful thing is that people who feel good about themselves, Cynthia, they don't tell you how good they are. They do what I call live the good. So just by virtue of how they show up in life, they're living the goodness. They don't have to tell you. And they have no interest in telling you. They just have an interest in serving.
0: Wow. I can't think of a better way to end this particular conversation with you because that nugget of live the good, I mean, that's so authentic and so beautiful. And I can't thank you enough for this beautiful conversation. I know it's one of many to come. I hope. Yeah. Absolutely. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you on social media, how to buy your book, which I am not exaggerating when I tell people that I listen to this book every single month. Maybe it's a chapter, maybe it's 15 minutes during a walk. So insightful. I get something different every time that I listen to it. Dr. Joan, let us know how to connect with you.
1: Well, uh, first, let me say thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me on. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for such great questions. Thanks for everything. So gratitude to me is the most important lean in first. I go by Dr. Joan Rosenberg on most things. So we, the website would, my website would be drjohnrosenberg.com on Instagram or other related social media. Most of it is listed under Dr. Joan Rosenberg. So they're the best ways. And there's a way to reach out to me. I think there's a contact sheet on the website. And as well, people can on Instagram direct message or do that sort of thing. So that there's ways to get a hold of me directly that way. I think the book is pretty much everywhere. So it's physically in Barnes & Noble. It is online, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. And I know the Southeast has a variety of other kind of chain stores. I believe it's in those as well. So it really pretty much wherever you buy books is where you should be able to get the book.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again, as always, my friend. I know that it was early for you on the West Coast. So thank you for getting up early to connect with my listeners. Very happily. So thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend.